Welcome to Creative Places and Faces, the podcast that explores how places can affect our creativity and lives. Irish author Jackie DeBurka interviews artists, authors, and all sorts of creatives from around the world. Travel virtually and explore the world creatively. is a bit of a renaissance man whose early working life involved travel writing focusing on the deep south and central america since then he's been involved in music sports tech and the environment simon cocking is the editor of irish tech news as well as being a very sought after keynote speaker and ico advisor welcome simon thank you so much for being here today thank you very much jackie and that's a, a very flattering introduction Thank you. I wasn't even sure did I manage to cover everything in there. Shall we jump straight in? Quoting Steve Jobs uh, in an interview, Simon, you said, when you look back, it is easy to join up the dots for sure. Do you feel that that's true of places that have influenced you as much as the subjects that you've been drawn drawn towards? Uh, Yeah, look, I I, I would say so. Um, I think I think. America is a big, messy package, but having spent a couple of years there, you can both love it and understand why other people hate it. And equally, my uh-huh. time in Spanish countries, uh, I do find useful because uh, it can, uh, can be quite nice to just rephrase things in Spanish rather than English. And then also in terms of Africa, they always say that once you spend time in Africa, you always plan to go back. So, yeah, I'd agree with that uh, question. Okay, fantastic. And one of my favourite quotes, Simon, wherever you go becomes a part of you somehow by Anita Desai. How do you feel about that quote? Again, yes, I would agree. Uh, uh, As well as the States, I think time in Central America is really good to help you to contextualise things that are playing out. Um, And and I I think we only become uh, richer for doing that. I think if you spend time in Asia, then... Anyway, it it stops things being oversimplistic reductions of us and them. And in most places I was in, they'd always say, be careful of the people in the next village, they're dodgy people. And that would be true in Nicaragua and also in West Cork. So I think when you go to that next village and realise they're not as bad as the people in the other village said they were, then, then you have a bigger perspective on it. Definitely. So as I mentioned in the introduction, Simon, in my opinion, you're a bit of a renaissance man. Looking back, can you choose the top five or six places that have become very important in your life and that you link uh, to both your creativity and activities? Yeah, look, uh, while that's a good question, I think it's a bit of a static and monolithic one as well, because uh, while I could list five places, I, I think if we just if if I were to just keep thinking back to the year in Central America, well, that's 1992, and, and then that makes mm-hmm. things a bit fossilized and sepia so 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 while those places were good uh i think you have to keep moving on and and, and laying down new memories because otherwise you know you're, you're like the footballer celebrating the one year and the one final that you played 25 years ago so so i think places are good but i think at the same time being in interesting places gives us a vocabulary to interpret interpret and be open to new places so you know i mean well, I think it was before lockdown, uh, I did go to South Korea and I turned down two invites to go, but I always wanted to go. So when, when the right invite came along, uh, I, I relished it because I knew I'd wanted to go. Uh, and therefore that then became a new uh, place in your mental context as well. So 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 I know you're looking for five places, but, but at the same time, that feels a little bit uh, 
static and, and unmoving. And uh, I, I would have said Madrid. And but then after leaving Madrid in '95. I didn't go back until I think it was about 2018 or 2017. So I hadn't been back in 22 years. At the same time, by having lived there for a year, I did want to go back and I uh, I did what I was commissioned to do there. But then I went, I walked my way back from the Reina Sofia uh, where Guernica is up past where we used to live. And it was all there. And similarly, I lived in Brighton, which again, would have been a big part of my mental map. But again, I haven't been to Brighton for probably, I don't know, 15 years too. But I feel that the day you step back there, your mental map from the train station down to the sea is all going to come back. So we we have these places in mind, but at the same time, I think we need to stay open to to the new places as well. So uh, half an answer for you, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I, I actually tend to absolutely agree with you there, Simon. Um, and even more so, I suppose, because we've all been through lockdown, depending on where we are, varying degrees, I think we think about these things more and look forward to perhaps the next places that we will uh, take on into our conscious and subconscious, if you like. Yeah. So, so here's the thing, right? So, so, so I did travel a lot and then, and then we had kids and then in some ways I felt that I didn't really go anywhere for what felt like the best part of a decade. And while I always used to read the travel section in the observer or whatever, I also stopped reading the travel section because at the time when I wasn't traveling, I felt that it was becoming almost mentally unhealthy to read about places that were just not on my horizon. And, and for a good decade, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I felt that I barely went anywhere. And then in the last four or five years, it all opened up again. And then I was going to loads of places. So I think sometimes you can know maybe that you want to do things, but it's not necessarily the time. And and again, with lockdown the last year, prior to lockdown, you know, I was in Bordeaux and the South Korean one. And, and then I realized quite quickly, we're about to have a baby. So that we had a baby, but at the same time, soon after the baby, the restrictions kicked in. And therefore, it's like I haven't even been to Dublin for a year. Um but at the same right. time, yeah. I know that I was traveling a lot and then, then things change. So I think it's both good to enjoy it when you do it and then recognize when you're not, not to beat yourself up about it. Definitely. Yeah, I would also agree with that. So in a sense, it's like we've been forced to calibrate our experiences that we've had through travel. Would you, would you think that would be true for yourself? Yeah. So it gives a great point of reference. Um, and so similarly, uh, we kind of rebooted and re-explored our podcast. So, you know, in any given week, I could quite easily, on one hand, uh, I might not see many people in person, but I would be speaking to people from California or Hong Kong or somewhere. So so the fact that on one hand, I haven't been somewhere in a year on versus uh, I have been to those places before. And therefore, like you were saying, the travel that you have done gives you the context to have these conversations with people and even perhaps to potentially riff on places that you've both been to even though it wasn't in the last year so you know i I think we're always richer for having traveled almost maybe both in the past and in the future and then currently maybe almost mentally as well you know for when we can't Mm -hmm. travel physically definitely okay so how would you describe your place in the world these days simon very much in terms of what you do and how you feel it's important to humankind (laughs) <laughs> on one hand i'd say it's it's not important at all you know like uh, i think that's uh you know that's that's the problem isn't it that's that's humanity keeps trying to make the world bend to its will and that's why we have the climate change issues that we do um in another way i guess uh with irish tech news we did look to to pivot into green tech clean tech and tech for good so therefore uh in a way that we are trying to do things to help um 
uh, if we see stories like we ran one from the Tyndall Center yesterday about uh, uh, an innovative cure for uh, colon cancer. So I think if, if we can do our bit to shine a light on positive and innovative solutions that help both the planet and people, then I, I think that is a way that we can do some good. So therefore, rather than the I, it's, it's maybe what we're doing to help shine a light on, on positive stories. Perfect. Okay. So let's trace the steps and the places along the way that might have contributed to who you are and where you actually are today, Simon. Where did you grow up and how did this environment influence you? Yeah, so so I grew up in London and I grew up in West London. And uh, I was thinking about this in a different context, but, but uh, in terms of being uh, white, I'd say that was probably about a quarter of the class. So we had... Uh, Indians that were bussed over from Southall to come to school where we were. And then we had mm-hmm. quite a mix of uh, people from all over the place. So I think in some ways uh, it, it meant that it was just normal that not everybody looked like you, spoke like you and did things. And so, so without that being a conscious thing, I, I think that wasn't a bad way to start in primary school. Uh, and secondary school was like that as well. It was, it was very racially mixed and and therefore it just wasn't really a thing and then even um to bring in to bring in some rent uh, my mum had lodgers and they would be from nigeria uh, ghana all sorts and so you know as kids again you would just have the the latest two people living in the attic <laughs> you know it was a room it wasn't you know like it wasn't brutal or anything uh, but then on the sunday you know, they might be cooking salted fish and like it didn't like we weren't mad on the smell but we realized that you know in other parts of the world you did different things with chicken and rice and fish and and therefore mm-hmm. uh, and, and actually too uh, one of them had tb so we were all whisked off to have tb injections several years before it was rolled out in the class so uh, you know our, our, our lodgers and our, ex- our our experience of the lodgers I guess meant in some ways you almost felt a bit special that when everyone else had to have their TB jab, we didn't have to have it because we'd already had it. <laughs> okay. So that sounds like a, a, quite an interesting background, Simon, in terms of, you know, the, the lodgers being there, the, you were quite young when you were absorbing that sort of difference of different cultures, the possibilities that surround that. Yeah, you see, so I guess as a kid, you're not really thinking about it. And then uh, my dad worked in the Ministry of Agriculture, but he worked in, this is in the UK, uh, math, food and fisheries. He worked with dealing with countries that were not in the EU, but were looking to do relationships with them. So he would be in Pakistan, South America. Uh, he met Gorbachev and Gorbachev was the agricultural minister and brought him over to the UK to, to do discussions about agriculture. So, you know, uh, it was almost a bit of a joke that he'd say, oh, the Bulgarians. And like, he, he was a bit of a, uh, <laughs> but we all, we felt him as, we felt he's a bit of an annoying name dropper at the time, but I guess he was just, <laughs> yeah, you know, so, 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 so we didn't, we weren't really impressed. We thought it was a bit tiresome, but at the same time, you know how it is as kids, you're hypercritical towards your parents, but it's probably also yeah. rubbing off towards them as well. Yeah, definitely. So would you consider yourself uh, as a a child to have been creative, Simon? Um, Oh, I was awful at art. It was quite funny because (laughs) when I came to Ireland, uh, I got got work on a community arts scheme uh, because I was was writing a novel in Madrid and I wanted to finish writing it. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, we both moved to Dublin to to come and house it. uh, And we both went for interviews 
unbeknowingly at the same place. So we both came home and both said, oh, uh, I've got a new job. Uh, I'm going to be a community artist on a community employment scheme. And then we realized it was the same place. Uh, so that was quite interesting. And therefore, for that project, you had to work with community groups. And I worked with women's aid and schools. Uh, and, and I can't really draw. Uh, I'd say I'm the worst drawer in the family. The kids are all much better than me. Uh, but I realized to do to be creative, it's about uh, c- conceiving an idea and getting it over the line. And then if someone else draws better than you, then put the pencil in their hand and make them do the drawing. And then you source the materials and work around it. So so therefore, uh, definitely creative, but not creative in like in art. I think I probably got a D or an E at school and I was advised very quickly not to do it as a subject. Okay, but yeah, creativity certainly, it's certainly not only about art. And uh, I would agree with, you know, what you've said about it there. Um, Were there any family members as you were growing up in in school? Were there any family members or teachers that you remember as encouraging the talents that were coming to the coming to the surface at that time? Yeah, look, I I think I've always I've always been very lucky like that. And it's interesting because we were reflecting on this on. So we have teenager boys who are 18 and. Uh, are very uh, argumentative and push back about help and i was and i was thinking but i've always had people mentors who were really helpful uh to me uh in in judo uh and good teachers in school and and i think it was because i was i was open to listening to what they had to say and i think uh, as an adult if, if children are willing to learn and interest in what you have to say you're going to give them more of your time to mentoring because nobody wants to mentor someone that keeps arguing about uh, why your mentoring wasn't helpful and so obviously i i mean and, and people will definitely say that you know uh uh i'm not I'm, I'm not quiet about expressing my opinions but at the same time i think somehow i was also happy and uh complimented if 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 people wanted to mentor me and i would always try to listen first rather than tell them why i didn't agree and and, and from that i was very fortunate i had a lot of uh, great people give their time and mentor me. And I think, therefore, if you can be open to people trying to help you, then you can actually be really helped. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving on, Simon, to family holidays, given you know what you've talked about with lodgers and your dad's work and everything, did you, did you have time as a family to go on holiday? And if so, where did you go? Yeah, so, um, so, so, so my dad was pretty rubbish because he spent all year traveling. The last thing he wanted to do was go on holiday. So, you know, in some ways he, he, he was no help whatsoever, but my mom did want to travel. So my mom was like, well, well, I've been home with the kids all year. So you, you might've been all over the world, but I want to go. So what my mom initially at the time, this is kind of mad to even conceive, but back then there was, I think it was club Cantabria and, we, we, we took we took organized holidays via bus to Greece, which must have been I don't know how many days it was on the bus to get to Greece, uh, because this is wow. before cheap flights. Yeah, so yeah. so we went to Corfu, but we got there via a boat and a ferry and a and a bus, and then we did skiing in Andorra, and again that was by bus. So we did a couple of these. We'll get you there by bus holidays. And then uh, she she realized you could swap houses, and this was pretty cool. So we would like, and, and again, our house was basically sort of a two up, two down in London, although it had an attic, so it was it was like a TARDIS. It was bigger on the inside than it looked on the outside. Um, but but our two up, two down was still so appealing to Americans in Minneapolis, San Francisco, San Diego that uh, each summer, every other summer for like about six years, 
we'd swap our house and we'd go and have five or six weeks in the US. And the great thing about the house swap was, was well, one, we got this house that was four times the size of what we lived in. And a bit, again, America was always quite ahead in terms of consumables. So they'd often come with several cars, maybe a drivable tractor, um, like a drivable lawnmower that I'd be given at 12 or 14 to go and drive around. And and so so therefore these house swaps would just plonk us in the middle of very in, like very interesting communities uh and therefore i thought that was a great way to do a holiday that you weren't just a tourist in a hotel you had you had land dropped into a you know parachuted into this really interesting community uh in like the minneapolis one was great uh, and we went white water rafting being in san francisco was pretty interesting people telling you about the earthquakes that had happened so i i think again inadvertently house swapping became a very great way to both have a holiday but but to also spend time in another culture sure okay yeah it's almost like we've been watching should i be saying this or, or not we've been watching rich house poor house i don't know if you've seen that where they swap over uh and it is like literally extracting somebody out of obviously you know not such a financially good life and putting them into something that is like high end and it's almost like a swapping over of lives at the same time mm-hmm yeah. So, and so, so, so I, get, I, I know what you mean. And so I, so I had this thing where I was in a state school and, and people said you were posh. And then I got a scholarship and I went to a public school, which is a UK private school. And then everyone said, oh, you're from the ghetto. And it's like, well, well, I'm definitely not posh and I'm not from the ghetto either. So, and, and then similarly uh, with Sussex, Sussex was pretty good, but it was all right. It was nothing special. It wasn't Oxbridge. But then I got sent to Georgetown, which was basically Ivy League. And again, you, you kept having this uh, pinging between different extremes of, you know, the mm-hmm. people at Georgetown, the people at the public school. I mean, George Osborne was there. Now, a bit like Stalin, he was very quiet and said nothing, but went on to be deputy prime minister. But you did spend time in the, and, but like, like, you know, like the, the, these people were heiresses of, you know, they were really rich. So I think when you know you're not of one or the other, then you're kind of contextualizing and looking at things uh, while remaining open to interacting with all of them. Sure. And of course, I'm sure your British accent at that stage would have been quite a novelty to them also, I assume. Look, in the US, it was kind of cool. It was almost like being being famous simply for sounding different. So, so yeah, yeah. As, as kids, I think they got a kick out of that. And so did we. We kind of found it funny as well. Hmm, okay. So you've mentioned obviously the, the two different places that you went to uni at that time. And then after university, you were working for a Let's Go Travel Guidebook and you went to cover the Deep South. How did you connect with that environment? And do you feel you, what, what you took away from it, Simon? Okay. So the reason that happened was uh, my uh the girlfriend I had in Georgetown was from Alabama and her best friend was at Harvard and she also from Alabama. So, so, so long, but long, the, the year before that, she was uh, very much advocating that Alabama was a great place and it wasn't like the stereotypes and, you know, a bit like the, uh, the uh, Sweet Home Alabama song. There's a line in it. There's good people in Alabama. So in some ways, you know, she was on a mission to show me that, that Alabama wasn't, wasn't just what you thought it was. So therefore, you know, she'd kind of been priming me for that before we even spent the summer doing that. Um, so, and I guess, again, a bit like neither being the posh one or the ghetto one, uh, I, I think, you, you know, you go to these places with an open mind. 
and, and, and places like Alabama and Mississippi, you know, while, while there are many valid things said about them, at the same time, uh, where we were, you could see that white people did live with and near and interact with black people, whereas on the East Coast, uh, a lot of East Coast liberals wouldn't actually have much interaction at the time. This would be in the 90s and before with black people. So you felt, you know, in some ways uh, in the South, again, it's not perfect in any way. But, but lots of people there actually had real and meaningful relationships with people who weren't like themselves, whereas in the East Coast, it was maybe more of an intellectual position that they held. Mm, okay, interesting. So in 1992, after that time in the Deep South, you, you also went off and you spent about a year or so in Central America, uh, where you lived for some time in Mexico City and also in Costa Rica. Tell, t- tell us about those places, Simon. Um what did you take away from them? How how were those experiences for you? Yeah, look, so 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 I loved it. Uh, first of all, uh, I got out of college in the summer of ninety one. Uh, wasn't completely sure what to do, uh, so I got a job in the civil service. Uh, I think it's about the only the only time my dad managed to do something nepotistic for me. So he did get me a job as the <laughs> office orderly, uh, and okay. and so I worked I worked for four to five months. Uh, my brother was there. He got offered a permanent job where I was like, no, this is not why I'm here. I'm here to get money to go away. So I worked for four or five months, uh, didn't take the permanent job, and then collected all the money on the Friday. And at the time, Virgin, it was great. You could get a £100 one-way flight to New York. So uh, I cashed in the money on the Monday, uh, got £3,000 in cash out, uh, walked very nervously across this 20 meters to get traveler's checks, and on the Tuesday or the Wednesday, I bought and took my one-way ticket to the U.S. to get to the U.S., to get across the U.S. I went to Mardi Gras uh, as a stop-off in New Orleans, and then I, wa- I walked across the border into Mexico to, to do all of that. So, so I guess simply the working – and my mum wasn't mad on me going, so she offered me money not to go. And I was like, well, I didn't spend five months working to, to, to just stay in London. And I was like, oh, what would I do? No, no, thanks, but no, I'm going, you know. Um, and therefore, you know, I got to Mexico with the idea that I had wanted to do this and I was open to doing it. And, you know, from there, uh, it was great. Like the, the the train conductors were dancing on the train in the middle of the night. I don't know why they were dancing with the passengers as, as we drove through places where kids threw stones at the windows. Um, and then then I met this, I, I met these Scottish girls. So I thought, oh, this will be good. But they weren't really very interested in me. And um, there were two American girls chatting them up and they weren't much interested in the American guys either. But the American guy said, oh, well, how about you? Do you want to come back to Mexico City? So then I, uh, we, that, and he had this cool yellow open top sports car that he'd driven down from California. And, and we drove to Mexico City from, uh, it was Real de, de la Cotorce, like it's the Holy 14. It was a mountain town that we were in. And we got stopped on the edge of Mexico City by a s- traffic cop. And we had to pay him $100 in bribes. Otherwise, he's going to take the car away. So, so my welcome to Mexico City was that we had to bribe the cop to even be allowed not to lose the car. And therefore, it was like, this is all just mad, interesting, surreal. But, but, but I wanted to see what it was like. And I knew that if I'd have stayed in the civil service, you didn't see that. So I guess that was a great entry point. And from that, I got work in Mexico City. And then we got work in Costa Rica. And Costa Rica, it's, it was about five or six hours to either coast, the Pacific or the Atlantic. So you'd go surfing, you'd find a new beach. Uh, River Phoenix's family were there living out in one of the communities. You saw them. They were all nuts. I was trying to work out that Joaquin might have been there too because it was that age where they were still kids and they were all hippie uh-huh. kids out in these places. But it was lovely. And and therefore, you know, 
a lot of people would go down to Central America and spend time there. But by being based there, you could kind of use it as a launching pad to have a look. So, yeah, look, it was really good. And then my brother came over and the Civil War had just finished in El Salvador. And we we just stuck him on a bus from Honduras and said, right, I know you flew to Honduras, but we're actually going to El Salvador. We just didn't tell you. And so we dragged him off to El Salvador for three weeks. And, you know, like everyone had machine guns and, you know, we accidentally stayed in a brothel because we didn't realize it was a brothel, but you could pay by the hour <laughs> of the day. We used condoms outside the other doors, but we didn't realize until we'd already been there a few days. So, you know, you, ha- you have to have that mixture of enthusiasm and naivety. And I guess I'll say one more thing is, is that my Spanish was pretty rough. It was like Tarzan. But we'd chat to people and you'd ask them a question and suddenly they'd roll up their T-shirt and they'd show you bullet holes in their stomach because you would inadvertently asked them a question that, that meant that they said, yeah, look, uh, this is what I was doing last year. I was in the army. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think you learn from it, and but you have to do those kind of things uh, and then maybe look back and go, oh, maybe I should have been a bit more careful. Definitely. But I was about to ask about your Spanish. So had you done Spanish? Had you learned Spanish or you just learned it kind of like in situ at that time? Yeah. So, so, so back when I was at college in the US, in my first semester, I did Spanish and the teacher, me and my buddy did it. She obviously didn't like us because I thought we were doing fine. And at the end of the semester, she gave me an F in Spanish. So, th- <laughs> so, so this this meant that in my second semester, I had to take an extra course to make up for the hole in having failed one of the courses. So I did like the first semester, I did four subjects. The second, I did five. So I had to do an extra course to make up for that. So I did quite enjoy the irony that eventually after so after a year in Central America and then later on a year in Madrid, uh, eventually in Dublin. Joaquin Cortez came over and he was dating Naomi Campbell and I got the gig to be the translator for him and the band. So I just thought I'd love to go back and see my teacher that failed me years <laughs> earlier. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So what what happened, Simon, to bring you back? You went uh, back to the UK, didn't you, in 1993? What happened to, did you run out of work or you family wanted you back home? How, how did you get back over to the UK, first of all? Yeah, so so no, none of that. Before I went away, uh, I applied to do a, a master's in development studies in the UK in Bradford. And as soon as I got the offer, I, I immediately deferred it for a year. So I guess like a lot of us do, I kept my options open. But I figured before doing development studies, it would make sense to actually spend time in developing countries, as they were called at the time. Um, so I was always coming back. But the idea was, was that I wanted to have spent time in Central America before I did. And I thought, you see, my concern was, is I would have just done four years, five years straight through in academia. And and I don't think that's the, the right way to learn about developing countries. So therefore I was, I guess I was kind of always toggling between real world experience, but then backed up because I did apply for a few jobs, but nobody was really interested if you didn't have the postgrad as well, but I didn't want to just do the postgrad without the experience. So so like I didn't even run out of money because I got work in Central America. I hadn't even spent all the traveler's checks. I think I came back with about a third of them. So I think that's positive in one way that you, yeah, that, that you work and live as you go. It, even by working, it's a valuable experience while you're away too. Definitely. What kind of work were you, were you doing while you were there, Simon? Yeah, look, so so back then, TEFL was, was the best thing to do. It was, it was really well paid. And 
you see, otherwise you'd do bar work, but but bar work would always be very smoky and having to listen to drunk people when when you were sober. <laughs> so, you know, I far preferred that I would do the TEFL and then you would go out and socialize on your terms, but then not be stuck there all evening. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So when you went back to the UK, you were deeply involved in the anti-Rhodes protest. What led to this, Simon? Yeah, so look, I was thinking about this question. And uh, on one hand, uh, in the US, we did we, we did Earth Day. So therefore, uh, and, and my master's, uh, I wanted it to be, I wanted, it was economics, but I wanted it to factor in uh, environmental economics. Uh, but in some ways, your question uh, sounds very noble. Whereas the reality is, is that while I was away, my brothers were involved in the poll tax protest, they were involved in the anti-roads. And so in 93, while I did go to road protests, and there was, so there's Twyford Downs and Newbury, uh, and they inspired the Irish Glen of the Downs, uh, a more honest answer for 93 was as well as doing that, I also played a lot of Ultimate Frisbee, and uh, I won my first UK Nationals. And, and that probably meant as much to me or more than the road protests. And then with my girlfriend, uh, the American one who'd been Central America with, we went to India, we went to Turkey, we went to Holland. So, so the road protest... Yes, it's it's really important, and it's about. Uh, you see, I'd read a lot of Edward Abbey and direct uh, action and direct protest, and it, so it's quite interesting that in the UK they'd also read this this uh, uh, direct action manifesto by Edward Abbey, and therefore they were trying to implement it in the UK. So, so I definitely was interested, and I put some time on it, and and there were some surreal moments. Like I read uh, Naomi Klein's No Logo. And she describes an event that happened that I was at, but there were only 25 people at it and she wasn't there. So it was pretty surreal. It was like the uh, M11 in Wanstead, um, East London, and they were going to they knocked through people's houses and people were built tunnels under the houses to stop them knocking it down. And they uh, they delayed the thing. And she describes that, but she wasn't even there. So it's kind of it's kind of weird how things become described as fact by people that weren't necessarily there. And, and even though I was there, I wasn't particularly legitimate because I was there, but there are other people that are there for months, whereas I'd take the tube over from West London, you know. So, so yes, environment's important, uh, but it was it's an element rather than, you know, I'm not going to claim more credit than other people did for it. Okay, fair enough. That's, that's fair enough. Now, soon after that, Simon, you spent a couple of summers busking and fire juggling. What an adventure. Where, where did this start off and uh, where were you busking? Yeah, so... Again, so it was the east coast of Spain the first summer and then the north, so the east Costa Brava, and then we did Galicia. But again, uh, and this this is also strategic, it was it was my girlfriend that was the fire juggler. And we worked out that you made, you made far more money if the if a girl juggled fire. And she was about five foot. So she, you know, she just, and she had these kind of, you know, colored dungarees and she looked quite interesting. And so I would ask people in four to six languages for money at the end of the show. So it's all part of the busking. I gathered the money, but she was better at it than me and probably visually more interesting. Uh, but Spain's an interesting place. So you, it, in many Spanish towns, you have these places called comedores. And comedores are where you can get uh, a meal, a free meal uh, every day. And I think they'd be run by nuns or religious orders. So a lot of the travelers and buskers uh, knew of these places and would, would drop in there and you were allowed to go there. So... and. Um, and then they would live like in uh, deserted villages in the mountains. They'd come down for the festivals. So again, uh, it, it was almost a bit like being an anthropologist that I was there and I was 
uh, Boston, but it wasn't my raison d'etre, but it was still very interesting to get a sense of how other people lived. And, and we broke even, so therefore we were sustaining ourselves. Um, so interesting and a great way to see Spain. Definitely. And whereabouts in the Costa Brava were you? Yeah, so we kind of w- went up and down, and then we were down uh, near uh, Alicante. See, the good thing was, was mm-hmm. in between the two summers, uh, we, we we then we then decamped to Madrid and we had Madrid as a base where we taught during the term time and we would use it. We went to La Fayas in Valencia and we went to uh, San Fermín in Pamplona. So we strategically tried to to, to 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 get to the relevant festivals. Like the one I didn't get to is the the, the Tomatino one where they all throw tomatoes at each other. In but bon, we managed bon to get yeah. yeah, you know. So okay. and again, I think Spain Spain just has a. After Spain, we moved to Ireland, and Spain and Ireland have similar, maybe, work-life approach that it's not all about work. So, therefore, I think that's why the Spanish like Ireland, and similarly, I think that's why it's a lovely place to live. It's interesting, yeah. I mean, because I'm halfway between Barcelona and Valencia, and uh, obviously I'm Irish, but I think most people will get that from the accent. So I never draw that. I never drew that parallel before, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, definitely, we would have an outlook on life not unlike the Spanish, definitely. Well, you see, um, after, so, after, after, I, after I left Spain and came to Ireland, I then met a lot, so many Spanish people came to Ireland and, and they, they preferred to come to Ireland than England because they felt that there was more of a cultural bridge. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was when I was growing up and we are taking the bus into town, so I, I, I was uh, brought up around Dundrum and you know, in the summer holidays, you take the bus into town with your friends and the buses were always packed full of Spanish students. Always packed. Yeah. It's just part, it was part and parcel, you know. Um, so you settled in Dublin after quite a lot of years of adventure around 1995 and you were there for about 20 years. So this connection to Dublin, I mean, you've mentioned sort of, you know, the, the, the feeling between the Spanish and the Irish. How, do you, how did that come about? What, what led you to be there and actually to stay there for a significant amount of time, Simon? Yeah. So in one way, it was more the other. So for eight years before that, it had been one year in each place for eight years. And mm-hmm. therefore, you know, you, you, would re- you, you, come, to, you come to realize that, like, but by, by leaving each place after around a year, approximately, uh, you would only you'd have like we had friends in every place, and you make friends, and you had a nice life in each place. But if you keep moving after a year, then uh, it, it doesn't allow you to be able to do other things for a longer period of time, and and therefore, uh, unfortunately, it, it wasn't that I loved Dublin. It was more it was kind of time to get off get off the bus in terms of that that constant progression and and i had met some people that just kept moving and just kept traveling and were 20 years on the road but i just felt that in some ways there's a there's a slight emptiness to being in perpetual motion and even within those years of traveling uh, i would feel that about three months would be about the most of changing town every day or two and and after three months you'd probably want to stop and spend longer in somewhere because it's just you just get a bit jaded. You just start to long to cook your own food and always eat restaurant and hotel food. So both in the microcosm of those eight years and then also after that, it made sense to be somewhere. And then with Dublin and with the with us both getting jobs in this creative place, it just became very interesting to be able. And also there were things that I was interested in doing in the 90s in Dublin that weren't really being done. 
so there wasn't any ultimate frisbee and i was interested to see if having played a lot to a high level in the uk i wanted to be able to play in ireland and so one of the projects became to roll out and, and now it's in every irish college and we would do a lot of the freshers fairs and we we began it in trinity and ucd dcu dit and then from there so so i guess staying in one place can enable you to do things that you can't do if you keep moving through um and then another one became so so that led to doing environmental education and doing the art and again uh, my partner at the time was very into art and she was an artist she'd been to art college so she wanted to do that and then i inadvertently got hired at the same place but then i realized that uh it, it was quite possible to get grants from the arts council if you didn't a lot of people, if they got rejected once, would never apply again. Whereas I would aim to then t- uh, go for coffee with the person that assessed my application and rejected me and ask them what I could do differently to get it next time. And I decided uh-huh. that if you got on uh, one in three times, then that was a win. And so so like those seven or eight awards I got were based on about 20 applications. But I didn't stop, whereas a lot of great artists, if they didn't get it the first or the second time, they'd say, the Arts Council doesn't understand my art and they'd storm off in a flounce where it wasn't like that. It was more of a bureaucratic <laughs> process, you know. So you had mm-hmm. to dial back the ego and do that. And therefore, you know, like you can only every, apply every three to six months. So therefore, you know, being in one place enabled you to, to do bigger projects than if you just keep moving. Sure. Okay. I mean, the, the word that comes to mind, Simon, as you're explaining all of the, the, the reasons to settle in one place is the, the word collaboration. Yeah, look, definitely. And, and uh, see, what was lovely was, was that at the time in that project, there were a lot of really interesting artists that had all been at NCAD, but couldn't find any work. And, and so like some of these guys, their pictures are now in the national concert hall. They were all talented people, but they just needed a year or two of breathing space to be able to develop their art and other ones have sculptures on the motorways and people did costume design so you know it's one of those things where you just happen to be really fortunate to be around very interesting people who looked at things differently and and i guess we you, you always win by being with people who are either smarter than you or do things in different ways to you so i, I definitely felt that i was uh riding the wave on that one and and i think in some ways though like uh, what i brought to them was was that i would say you've got to put the stamp on the letter it's all well and good having these ideas but if we're just in the pub talking about it then that's as far as it'll go whereas and also keela were around then and they were quite interesting and they were uh the the people we worked with the women formed a women's acapella band and they began to support keela and they did world music and therefore the travel meant that i would often give them ideas for songs based on things that i'd listened to so i think there was collaboration and everyone was kind of open to trying things Okay. And it sounds a little bit like you can disagree, but feel free to disagree if you want. It sounds to me like you played the role of a, as like a facilitator. Well, so the funny thing is, is that when I came to Ireland in the 90s, uh, I felt that this word had been eaten, swallowed and regurgitated, uh, like almost ad infinitum, because I used to hear faci- <laughs> facilitate so much. So it was definitely a buzzword then. Um so, yeah, look, but I think we had facilitators. They had people that came in. But I guess what a good thing was, was we had a, a weekly newsletter and the, and the authorship, the editorship would be passed around. So everyone would be encouraged to curate and edit the newsletter. And equally, a bit like, was it Blue Peter? But whoever had a skill would have to teach the other people the skill. So, you know, somebody taught silk screen making. Someone taught uh, how to use the uh, angle grinder and welding. And, and therefore... 
there, there was work there to be a teacher if you could come up with something to teach the other people. So I think that was a really good way of teaching people how to learn, but also how to teach and that the teaching is a, a source of income. And a lot of artists realize that, that they complemented their work with teaching. So, yeah, I, I, I think we learned to facilitate, uh, but then I think we all did, you know. Okay, fair enough. So in, in 1998, you spent a bit of time away from Dublin in Honduras doing a, a mosaic environmental art residency and also some paddy scuba uh, dive master training. Now, in an interview, Simon, when you referred to this period of time, you said, every time you work with others, the final outcome is the result of a coalition of inputs, energies and ideas on the way things should be done. Let's talk about this and also the importance of people's intentions towards the work and projects they're involved in. Yeah, so uh, I, I, it's true and I agree with that. Uh, and so this is community art. And the thing about community art is it's a bit tricky as, as an artist or as somebody. You have a vision of how it sh should look like and what it would look like and what, what you'd like it to look like. And because you've done mosaics before, you've learned from your mistakes, but, but every time you, you would do a community art project, whether it was a mural or a mosaic or something collaborative, you had to have this balance between uh, surrendering slightly to a large amount uh, what it was going to be like, because if you're going to let other people be involved, it will generally go into places that aren't quite how it worked the last time. Um, now, the thing is, is that sometimes uh, if you're also creating a public commission, then you, you, you don't want it to look crap at the end. So you have to kind of balance that one. Um, but we worked out ways that we could do things like we do finger painting and we would do um, collage and stuff so that everybody could still go away with, 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 with an outlet of their expression and something they created. But then you would work out how do you make the final piece also something that the sponsors are happy with. Uh, and therefore you're spinning lots of plates. So, uh, it's more challenging, but at the same time, it, it makes it quite interesting. And again, because my master's was in community development uh, and aspects like that, uh, I wasn't so. I think some artists would find it very hard to do community art because they want more control over the final outlook. But if you're aware that you're doing it for, for a wider process, then then you 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 can live with that much more, you know. And at the same time, by collaboration, it's a bit like Linux and open source. If if you allow things to be open you might actually get things that are far better than you thought they would be if it's just you. So I think we, you, you do win by doing it, but at the same time, you have to dial down your ego and, and be able to listen to what other people are suggesting. Definitely, definitely. I touched on the subject of creativity uh, within the environment with one or two of the guests that I had for Series 1, which is based in Northern Ireland. And just in terms of like the troubles, which is, you know, a bit of a weird name for what happened in the north obviously how do you feel in your own experience simon how do you feel uh, about the road of creativity in terms of encouraging peace in, in those type of situations yeah so so we had very direct involvement in that in that uh, in in 95 um the, our, our band in uh, our project in dublin had a band happy city and happy city were a samba drumming band and so they got a lot of summer gigs playing at places where they wanted drumming, but they didn't want sectarian drumming. So, um, mm -hmm. so 
So my girlfriend was good in musical, but there was still space for people to play the go-go bells and the bells and the rhythm sticks. So I, I got dragged into that. Uh, but it was interesting. So we played Belfast and we played the Fool's Road and we played the, uh, the um, what was it called? Like, I think the Felons Club. We, uh, we, you know, and I turned around and Jerry Adams was behind us in the parade when we were playing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of us were kind of chuckling to themselves because cause the, the, the three of us who were English, we'd only been in Dove, in Ireland like two months. And there we were thrown deep into, you know, and, and we were in the bar afterwards and they're all, they were like, and we were given a flat to stay in by somebody that had done time in um, the Long Kesh or somewhere. And all the books were quite interesting. They were like Alice Walker and black women's writing and stuff. So he, the person who had been a prisoner had clearly, you know, done, lit, done, done English and stuff in there. But we were just like, we were so, kind of almost nervous that we just slept on the floor rather than sleep in the bed because we were just like, you know, we're, we're English and, you know, like I, I just didn't feel qualified to get, and then, you know, in the bar we the toilet and people were going, oh, great gig. And you were like, you just didn't even want to speak because you didn't want to sound English because you were on the Fool's Road and you were in a, in a deeply uh, Catholic area. But, but the band were, the rest of the band were just laughing because, you know, they they often the next day we were playing on the other side of the wall so therefore we had this kind of um funny invisibility past that because we were a band playing music that wasn't on one side or the other we were able to be there so therefore we learned a lot i learned a lot from that at the same time therefore uh creativity the music provided entertainment to both sides and therefore it's a bit like belfast now in downtown they're aiming to have areas that are not you know religiously sectarian they're just for people that have a certain interest. And I think that's the way forward. So that yes, creativity, you know, it, it provides a way that you do things and you're not defined by your religion. Now, we did do some EU interreg projects a few years later with Belfast, Liverpool, Dublin and Brussels. And the trip to Belfast, you could see that people were very defined by who they were and there were certain signaling signaling questions that they would ask each other that would establish were you a catholic where did you go to school were you a protestant and 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 you can see it it was still a massive challenge that people uh still needed to contextualize where these other people were from and who they were before they before they decided what they were going to say so like it's very difficult and complex but then again the, the titanic sector of belfast you know, and we were up there in a different life for tech events showed that there's still a lot of great things going on up there. And if you can find ways to, to bring people together for their shared interests and passions, hopefully you can dial down the religious side of it. Definitely, definitely. So going to where you live, Simon, these days, uh, you're in Cape Clear, which is Cork, which is an absolutely stunning environment. How does this affect you and your work outfit, output and your creativity? Yeah. So um, for the first, well, for one thing, when we first moved here, I started getting invites, really interesting invites to go all over the world that when I was in Dublin, I wasn't getting. And I was like, why are you only inviting me now? Like you weren't interested in me when I lived in Dublin. And now it's a lot more complicated for me to get there. So one, somehow (laughs) the the relationship to, to your remoteness sometimes, you know, it's like the movie where the cowboy leaves town and says, I'm done with the gunfighting. And then they all want them to come back. So somehow by, by being more remote, yeah, it's funny, but it happened. <laughs> that, um, but then also then your filter goes up because in, in Dublin, uh, I've said this, but people people would often want to have a coffee with you first and then assess if they want to work with you. Whereas, 
you know, if it's not trivial to get there, then you're like, let's let's work together and then let's have coffee and just to try to flip that paradigm. Um, and obviously, lo- lockdown has now made many people realize that you can work with people remotely first and you don't need to have this uh, this coffee that often isn't productive. And and so therefore, uh, it hasn't affected the creativity. Well, actually, I th- I'd say it's affected the creativity in a positive way. But your filter goes up in terms of, does this merit a face-to-face meeting or can we do what you want us to do to help you first? And then if we're in the same place later, then we'll meet up. And and people, I guess, so we've been advocating that for five years or more, whereas now people understand that. And and therefore, I, I think it, it's fueled a lot of people's creativity as they've had to work with the constraints. Um, so I almost feel like the, the rest of the... Like, and I spoke about it a little bit that we, we, we now have remote internships with several Irish universities, which we've always offered. But before they always were very fixated on the idea that we had to give the intern a desk and a physical building. But, but all of us don't sure. live in the same place. anyway. So therefore, they now realize that, you know, if, if the quality of the work is high and the timeliness of the work is high, then it doesn't matter that they're not physically in the building with us because we don't work with each other like that. Hmm. Okay. Um, would you say then, do you feel that Cape Clear is a very positive environment for you? I mean, t- taken out the last year, because it doesn't matter where we are, we have to deal with the, deal with our direct environment. But do you feel it's a more positive environment than previous ones? Look, uh, my, my wife went back to see the grandparents in Dublin. And after a year of the car being sat in the car park in Baltimore, on the first night back in Dublin, the car was stolen and burnt out. So, you know, like oh. uh, in some ways, that's, that, that's that's your metaphorical illustration uh, hmm. of. And also, like I, I've lived in many cities, but it's quite funny when you drive back from West Cork and you approach Dublin and you approach the M50. From the moment you get on the M50, you can feel the aggression, frustration, and annoyance with everyone, even in their cars around you and at each other. So, you know, the uh, it's dark. It's dialed up a lot higher. Um, so do I prefer it? Yeah, look, I do. I, I see. But even even remote working isn't for everybody. Like some people feel that they miss the water cooler and, you know, they miss that aspect. But, but see, I, I guess I had the opposite where before I did this, I was spending four hours each day commuting to Ericsson and Athlone. So, so therefore, mm-hmm. you know, I'd leave before the kids were awake. I'd get back after the kids were asleep. And and those four hours were even before you did the eight to nine hours of the working day there. So 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 I, I've done the the hardcore commute the other way, and and you might get to read a bit, but only only on the days you weren't driving. Um, and overall, you know, you, you, you strip out that commute time, and therefore you hopefully you're then focusing on the things that are practical and relevant, and less time is lost to things that you didn't really need to do. Definitely, definitely. I think probably a lot of people are experiencing that, Simon, but also on the other side, there's those people who just, it doesn't suit them to work remotely and they, they suffer from the lack of social interaction that they were used to in an office scenario, you know? Yes, so 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 this is true. Uh, but I guess because there are people uh, like me, people doing things like this, I've been invited to join quite a few like uh, Twitter groups, uh, like they're kind of, you know, uh, like private influencer groups where you get invited in. And so these are people who are all over the world, but living in a similar way. So there's a lot of kind of conversation and 
play. And I think maybe the clubhouses that perhaps like this too, that, that as we see less of each other physically, we are creating and looking for ways. So, so, so on one hand, while I might not have seen someone who's relate, I may not have seen someone who's not related to me for 24 hours sometimes, i.e. the wife or the kids, uh, it's never 24 hours where I'm either not interviewing someone or I'm not uh, chatting in these groups in things that are related. So, 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 you know, I'm not going up the walls and I'm not talking to myself yet. <laughs> okay. They say that's a sign of intelligence, by the way, just, just throwing it out there. <laughs> Apparently. Um, anyway, you've, you've also received arts grant Simon to explore mosaics in other cities, including the likes of Lisbon, uh, Ravenna and Mexico City. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Simon, and those environments? Yeah, look, so, so the fun, fun and cool thing about the Mexico City ones, right, it's UNAM is one of the cool ones. It's the library, University Nacional ah, Mexico or something. They were done by uh-huh. Juan O'Gorman. So therefore, you can guess the <laughs> prominence of that one. So, so I love I love that. And and there's a few Irish people that have popped up in different revolutions in South America, gone native and been part of that. And so Mexico City, uh, his mosaics are, are are on the library, and they're huge. They're like maybe uh, thirty meters high by a hundred meters wide, and they're on four sides. And they're they're cool. The metro has a lot of mosaics in it too. Um, and then. With with Lisbon, it's the pavements, and and then Ravenna. So, but with the with the Ravenna and the um, the Lisbon ones, there were also frisbee tournaments on at the same time. So I timed it that I'd spend two or three days looking at mosaics, and then go and play frisbee. So I guess with all these things, uh, it was kind of good to both do art and work and tie it all together. And then one of my pals came with me to Italy, and he said, "I I don't care what we look at as long as we go to restaurants twice a day and eat Italian food." So, you know, sometimes <laughs> it can be good to find traveling partners who don't necessarily love or are mad on what you do. But, but, but if an element of what you do works for them, then that's kind of quite surreal. It's a bit, you know, like travels with my aunt. You have a, a traveling companion who has a completely different take on things. But we were still there standing looking at seventh century church mosaics for different reasons. So I kind of like the, the absurdity of that as well a little bit. Hmm, okay. Um, so, Simon, currently, and, and you've mentioned it earlier on when speaking about, you know, being sought after more now that you're in Cape Clear, you are very much sought after in various capacities, including being an ICO advisor and a global keynote speaker. What is currently most important in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, so, I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, we, had, we had a baby 15 months ago, so... Uh, whether I like it or not, you know, that's, that's, that, that's a factor that has to be factored in. You know, the, the kids are in school, but for the best part of the last year, they've mostly been off school. So, um, you know, there's a debate about whether, whether the pram in the hallway affects the creativity or not. But you see, from the very beginning, the first kids we had were twins. So we went from, well, we went from zero to, for two weeks being told that they could tell us there was more than one, but they didn't know how many. So, so initially I was horrified that we might have three. And I was like, how on earth would you feed three at the same time? Um, hmm. so, so therefore, but I guess what I'm saying is, is kids aren't necessarily a constraint or if they are, they're one that means that when you have time, you don't faff about. So for example, now between half nine and three o'clock, that's your five hours to be creative. And, th- and then you try to then engage and be there for them when they're around. So, so I've got friends who have no kids 
and therefore have 24 hours a day. And they talk about how, how they're just too busy to get anything done. So, so I think sometimes there's a trade-off where if you have less time, uh, it means that you just get on with it and you're less perfectionist about things. And, and that, I think, attitude can enable you to get more done sometimes. So then you're asking me, well, what's most important? I guess, and I'm not even saying that's most important, but I'm almost like that's your reality check that, that while we talk about big things and big goals, it's also you have to manage the more mundane things like that. Um, sure. Uh, we spoke a bit about, you know, renovating old stone houses. Well, you can only do, it's been interesting. Like if you talk to builders, builders hang up the phone the moment they learn the location of where you are. So, so therefore, <laughs> a, a wider trend over the last year or two. The last year has been about resilience, self-resilience, and the ability to do more. And and so and so, my wife is the one that will lead the research. And she said, "Oh, I think we're going to have to put a new roof on," you know. And I'm just like, "Oh my god!" Uh, but she's breaking it down into watching videos on YouTube of people doing it. So therefore, what's important? I think what becomes important is. How can we do the things that we want to do? And even while it seems insanely ambitious, how can we break it down into bite-sized tasks? And therefore, you know, like I'm saying, if the builders are hanging up anyway, it, it, it no longer becomes a luxury or a choice. It just becomes the only way to do it is perhaps to do it yourself. And, and I think that's actually not a bad thing because, you know, that way you're not at the end of a long supply chain of gas coming from Russia. You're looking at ways... How can we be more self-resilient, self-reliant? And that might also mean that we tread more lightly on the earth. So it's kind of important in a way that that gives you a rationale for, for why you're doing things and how to do them. Uh, so I've half answered your question, but maybe not completely. That's okay. No, it's it's, a, it's an interesting answer. And I think it probably will resonate with a lot of people regardless of their situations. It's like that whole thing of being resilient and embracing your direct environment and at the same time trying to continue on with whatever your life work is, I think, you know? Yeah. And, and I think what we've seen, and this is the lovely thing, is people have still done stuff. And then you'll have these crazy speeded up videos of people digging out a swimming pool from rock and they've time lapsed it and sped it up. And it is one person doing it. But even you can get amazing things done. And I saw Kevin with Kevin McLeod. There's a guy who who built a house out the side of old caves. You know, and, you know, on one hand, it's insane, but but we can actually do a lot. And I think people have forgotten or have, have outsourced the ability to do things to other people without realizing that we can actually achieve quite a lot. Is that the guy, the guy who was, did he have some sort of a health issue? The guy who built the house yeah. out of the cave? Is yeah. That the same? yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. saw that as well. Okay. Very, very, very fascinating. Um, so going back to your, to your own life, Simon. I can't help but think, would you ever compare your own life to that of the art of mosaic? Yeah, so I thought about this one. Uh, again, you know, my wife my, my wife would say, you just get bored easily. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yourself, would you agree or disagree? Um, no, like, uh, yeah, I, I feel she's being a bit insulting, so I wouldn't completely agree. Um, but... <laughs> I, th I think the thing is, is that um, the great thing is, is that you you contextualize, you cross reference and it gives you a wider memory bank. And it also dials down the imposter syndrome and the fear of uh, who am I to do this? How could I possibly do that? When you get, when you have a context of going, well, look, I mean, we had that goal. And, and even though it's hard or it was difficult and it didn't quite turn out how we wanted, we did we did get that goal done. 
and you know had the year in central america survived it maybe, maybe didn't quite do it perfectly but you just have to accept that and learn from it so therefore in some ways i think we should all be slightly mosaic because then it means that we have the confidence to take on new projects that may be outside of our comfort zone and and equally i think that keeps us alive it's a bit like old people doing sudoku to keep the brain challenge um the mosaic i think shouldn't necessarily be a negative term but more like a, a palette that you can draw from when you do your next project you might not have done you know that you might not have made a home from a cave but you may have done things that give you the ability to believe that you can do something interesting answer very interesting i don't see it as negative at all uh, i think it's beautiful and it's colorful and um, but i do like the fact that you brought in the imposter syndrome into that because that of course is a huge challenge to to pretty much all creative people yeah and 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 some of our team will have that uh to some degree i guess uh, uh i i i personally worry less about it uh it's it's not that I know that what I'm doing is perfect, but like, um, like I was at one event in the in the Ukraine, uh, Kiev, and there was a guy speaking, Bobby Lee, and Bobby Lee built the first cryptocurrency exchange in China and sold it, so therefore, hugely successful, and he was speaking really well. So, so, so you were up there, and you, you, you were, you know, you were co-listed with him, but you, you're going, this guy's seriously smart and seriously amazing. But, 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 so you try not to dissolve into a pile of insecurity, but rather go, well, what's he doing well? How's he doing it well? And what can I take away from that? And and I guess it's that thing that that because you're, because you're talking at events a lot, um, you try to make sure that you also look at did it work? Did it go well? What what bits went well? And how can I improve on it? And therefore, I think you, you just keep moving forwards. Uh, and then with the other people we have that are just not sure if they should be where they are, then you know, like from doing sport, you're like you encourage people. You still point out the bits they can do better, but you you also give them positive affirmation because. Human, humans probably need, I don't know, 70% affirmation or 90% and then 10% of critical feedback. But you have to couch it well so they can take it on board. We're, we're just very delicate, sensitive creatures, really, aren't we? We are, definitely. Definitely. One quick question, because I know it's it's a, a large part of what you're doing right now. Blockchain for dummies. Would you like to try and give us an explanation and how it relates to what you're doing, Simon? Yeah. Okay. So I guess uh, blockchain isn't a magical pill that will fix everything, but in some ways, uh, blockchain enables us to do things better than we used to before. And then the high level metaphor would be that um, if if I just have all of my diary written in pen on a book and I drop it in the water, it's gone. But if 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 my stuff that's important to me is in the cloud, it doesn't matter if like the laptop we're working on now. If that laptop dies, well, that's a pain, but nothing I have on the laptop is uniquely stored on that laptop. It's up in the cloud. So blockchain gives you a way to have things distributed, you know, across a number of places. And therefore, in that way, uh, you can have more security. And also, so the, the Tapscots wrote a great book, uh, Blockchain Revolution, Don Tapscott and his son, Alec Tapscott. And they, mm-hmm. they, have, they have some good real world examples. So for example, if you're in Central America, if you're in Nicaragua and you have the land deeds, and, and the dodgy local mayor tipexes out your name and puts his name on the deeds. Well, then he's stolen the land and it's gone. Whereas if, if the land registry is on a blockchain, you, you can't do that. You can't erase the details because you'd have to erase the entry on every computer that's distributed globally that stores the data. So therefore, 
it's like the value use, leveraging the value of distributed locations in the cloud to ensure that the an action that has been done can can't be disputed or undone and therefore in that context so so, so we're, we haven't really been super interested in bitcoin it's more about how can blockchain help so blockchain could help with medical records so that you break your leg in spain and you can access it whereas previously if the records are in a dusty place in the matter they can't find it whereas if you had a black box that could only be accessed when you wanted to then you could pull up your med- medical records and then you could start to have personalized healthcare specifically relevant for you based upon your data so so in those ways blockchain could be really helpful for health for land for ownership of musical rights and things like that so i guess those are the ways of why there's a lot of talk about it and why it's interesting because it really could tick a lot of um, tech for good uh, goals. Mm-hmm. That's a great explanation. Uh, Simon, going back to your own life and everything that's central to it right now, where, where, where do you see yourself by 2030? What ideally would you like to have achieved by then? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I'd like to be alive, really, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> good start. So- uh, we, I, I, as, a, as a kid, I was always conscious that you could just get hit by a bus. Uh, I cycled in London. Uh, you've got to be very careful. Uh, within, I don't know, within five years of leaving secondary school, I think at least 30 of the people in our year were dead. So therefore, uh, well, without being trivial, I, I think it's important to kind of appreciate the value of, of being alive. And uh, so therefore, you know, uh, health and being alive are 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 not to be underrated, you know, and equally, uh, you know, a, a friend of a friend of ours recently uh, just committed suicide. So, you know, that not everyone sees things these ways. So it does make you value, uh, value the importance of mental health and having positive mental health. And, and obviously like, like the cross reference will be that some people go, oh, you know, oh, midlife crisis, what have I done with my life? I haven't done anything. And you have to dial that down and recognize that you have done things. So, so in that context, while it might seem trivial, simply being around and also uh, i did have like a a a near-death experience on five days in the icu about 12 years ago and the kids the the kid the only kids that were alive then were very little so therefore i thought oh look uh my job is to do what i can to maintain my own health to be around for them because they were only about i don't know six then or something and therefore you know when people like that philip seymour hoffman you know when people die and they leave young children you're like, well, whatever you felt about yourself, I still think it's a bit uh, tough on the kids. So, so therefore, you know, I, I think, you know, if we can s- stop giving ourselves a hard time about not having achieved everything that we sort of wanted mm-hmm. to, then, then, then people underestimate the value that you may well provide to other people simply by being around. And therefore, I think you should do what you can to just stick around to help out those other people because a lot of those are little people and they just won't understand, you know, your own inner turmoil if you decide not to continue. Now, obviously, that's a bit dark and heavy. So if you talk about, well, what would be important to be done by then? Um, you know, uh, we'd like to get the renovation done on the house so that it's not a cold, dry <laughs> pile of stones. It would be one. Um, then, you know, my wife keeps talking about, you know, she had said, oh, well, you know, what are you going to do when you retire? But she realizes that, like, I like reading and reviewing books. So in some ways, a bit like people who continue to be barristers into their 80s, if if penguins still send me interesting books to read, I'm not going to stop reading the interesting books because you don't lose by doing that. So it's it's that it's that thing, isn't it? It's half work, but if you do what you like, then it doesn't feel like work, work, and you want no. yeah yeah. 
So I think it's it's a great answer in terms of, you know, even as you said at one stage, a little bit of a dark answer. I don't think so. I think that the reality of, of the experience that you've been through of losing somebody to suicide the, the last year that we've all been through that of course has accentuated people who are more delicate which we're all delicate but you know people who are extra delicate so I think it's a great answer Simon it's like be yourself be the hopefully a, a healthy you know good version of yourself and uh, how that affects the people around you is is potentially amazing anyhow you know yeah and, and I think actually and also I, I guess the nice thing is I've interviewed uh, some people like Wade Davis was cool and he's like late 60s, uh, was an anthropologist at Harvard. And you can see that he's very much trying to pay it forwards because when he was 20, mm-hmm. uh, the Richard Shortley's believed in him and sent him to the Amazon, you know, to go and investigate. And therefore he knew that other people were supportive and believed in him. So he's a, he's explicitly trying to pay it back or pay it forwards to other people. And I think that's almost recognising, you know, like you're no longer the best Frisbee player, but you can still be supportive and helpful to other people. And that's actually uh, a very positive role to fulfil as well. You know, so I guess it's working out uh, as you as you age how you can still be of help to other people. Definitely. I, I'm 300% in agreement with that. Now, let's think about the, the the light at the end of the tunnel um whether we believe in vaccines or not but anyway the light at the end of the tunnel when we can all travel fairly freely again uh, not being worried about covid in the way that we are currently as, as a lot of people are if i was to go and visit cape clear where would you suggest for me to say, stay there simon yeah this is going to be a funny conversation um but uh yeah there's damp <laughs> You can stay. There are yurts, which are pretty lovely, um, and they're warm. They have a fire in them. So, you know, and I've been to visit friends that have stayed in them, and they're pretty cool. Uh, then there's the B&B. Uh, my friend camped here years ago, and he said the wind blew his tent away. So so I I, I would go for a yurt rather than the tent. Um, and it, and there's a, there are double beds in it, so you're not sleeping on the floor. Okay. Okay. And what about what sites would you say I should I should see? Yeah, um, you see, there are some people that, that ping in and ping out in the day and therefore they take a taxi and just drive around the island. Um, uh, I, I, I tried to go somewhere new every day for the first year or two uh, and then we just got busier. So, so I haven't done that, but I haven't seen everywhere. And that's kind of crazy in one way because it's only three miles by one mile. So it's that whole thing, a bit like, uh, is it Tim Robbins, Tim Robinson and the Aran Islands where, you know, he, he, he mined the concept of the islands and he wrote at least two sets of trilogies about the islands and understanding it. So it's, and, and the same with fractals, the, the closer you look at the coastline, the more you see the indentations. Uh, there, there are a lot of interesting things that I find of interest. There are beaches. So therefore, you know, the helipad is pretty cool. And so I was laughing at ourselves that in lockdown, we would drive to the helipad and then, then we'd go and run, run laps around the helipad, you know? So, you know, you can kind of, because there is a gym here, but the gym's closed. The gym's been closed for the year. Sure. So therefore, yeah. you become creative. And so, so me and the younger two just went and ran laps around the helipad. And then when we got bored, we drove chasing the youngest one, you know? So <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> well, yeah, I was so... going mean, to... My next question, my next question, Simon, was going to be any slightly unusual or, or eccentric experiences. But unless you have another one, that I think that, 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 that last answer is actually quite cool. 
um yeah look the great thing is is there are kayaks and it's a lovely place for kayaking and um you can kayak either the west side or the east side and and i was kayaking the west side but sometimes it can be just, it can be flat here and you don't realize that it's rough on the west side because you still have the residue of three thousand miles of water so i was going around and i was trying to get past the dunanor which is like the golden castle it's a ruin and and it was getting really rough and then i realized there was, there was an otter next to me enjoying the waves and surfing while i was just trying not to capsize so on one hand i was just freaking out on the other hand i was like oh that's pretty cool there's an otter here Oh, one of my favourite creatures. I'm I'm a little bit envious, I have to say. <laughs> so, what about restaurants, Simon? How how how? What kind of restaurants would you be recommending there in Cape Clear? <laughs> uh, well, there, okay, there there aren't really any at the moment. Uh, the, the, the 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 shop the shop does stuff, and so therefore uh, that oh, I don't want to forget. Like the, the the pub and the shop both did food. So yes, I guess uh-huh. it will come back. But 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 to flip from you know so so very little in baltimore there was this uh, great place that won a michelin star and we were we went to it before it sh- shut for the winter and and therefore from on cape you just take what you can get just across the water yeah. there was a michelin restaurant and that, I, I just thought that was fantastic and it was a tasting menu and it was on slate and it was a bit like a heston blumenthal kind of thing so you can kind of go i mean west cork is great because it's all about taste of west cork so you can go from generic and functional to super high end as well, which was just fun. Okay, okay. And uh, when things do open up again, the the local bar is a nice bar. Well, yeah. See, um, back in the winter, it wouldn't necessarily open, but but if we wanted the Six Nations to open, they would open. So I think I think any pub where you have a relationship with them that. You know, when and when the Lions were playing in Australia, then they opened at nine in the morning, and you could have alcohol or tea. So, uh, you know, so you have you have you have you have two pubs, but it was more, you know, that that they are in the community and they integrate with the community, and that therefore, you know, they will open for us to watch the Six Nations and things like that. Um, I think is is what I like about it. It you know, it, it's not that the Guinness tastes better in by St. James's Gate or anything. It's not necessarily the alcohol. It's more the whole, you know, I guess the community aspect of it, which which I like. Hmm. Okay. So what size is the community there? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, so the island is known for bird watching and for rare and interesting species that migrate over there. And I think you can kind of carry that metaphor over to the population as well. So you have people that, 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 that are all year and over winter here. And then you have the people that come back as the weather gets better, Easter, spring, summer. And so you have people that live here, people that come back temporarily, and then you have uh, tourists as well. So I'd say that hardcore that live here is probably 80 to 100. Uh, Wikipedia says 140. But, uh, and, and on the electric... On the, on, the, on the electoral roll, it, it lists people that we had to ask the librarian, who were these people? Because we'd never heard f- of them or met them. So a bit like, you know, the Jesus and Mary getting to Bethlehem to be registered. There were clearly people that came back for the census to be on the census. So you know, uh, I, I think living here is a slightly philosophical concept and different people have different interpretations of that. Hmm, interesting. Okay. So lastly, Simon, uh, what are you currently working on? 
yeah, good question. And uh, we rebooted the podcast in January. We moved platform. Uh, we've got we've grown the team to seven, uh, and that's been really fun, really interesting. Uh, we we just got a sponsor for March. So the first two months were about growing traffic. The next month was about uh, boosting it to make the sponsor happy. So hopefully that progresses. And and in some ways, it's quite a fresh new project. Yes, I've been interviewing people for a long time. Uh, yes, we've done podcasts, but but this was looking at how we do it and how we do it well. And we've had uh, some heads of the United Nations Environmental Program. We've had cool, interesting people. So I, I quite enjoy that. And and it just you still learned and it still refreshed what you did and it still challenged how you did things. So therefore, uh, there are elements of it that are definitely new. And I think by it being new, uh, it keeps you engaged. And, and I think that's the thing. Um, and in three to six months time, I mean, maybe we'll move into video. But for now, this is new and this is interesting. And therefore, uh, I think I'm quite enjoying that. That's interesting. Do you feel the need for video? I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, so some people do. Some people feel that it's better for reading the facial nuances of people. But in, in 2020 in the US, there was a massive rise in podcast consumption. And mm-hmm. what's ha- what was happening, what is happening is, is that people, previously you'd have like a, a playlist and you'd have an upbeat playlist when you were jogging or walking the dog. Whereas now people have kind of going, well, I want to listen to something while I drive, walk the dog and when I do the commute, if I still do a commute. So so the mm-hmm. the use cases for people using podcast has, has grown. Uh, so therefore, uh, I guess what, what we try to do is we try to make whatever we do consumable in the way that you want to consume it. So at the moment, uh, our text articles can be listened to. Um, you can uh, read a summary of our podcast. So we try to make it that y- you, the listener or the reader, can cons- consume it in the way you want to. Um, therefore, video video works sometimes, but it but it would depend. Like you're not going to do it while driving. You're not really going to do it by wa- while walking the dog, and you're probably not going to do it while you're at the gym. So so I think there's still uh, a place for podcasts in some situations where where video doesn't work. Mm, okay. Yeah, I personally find, for myself personally, interviewing people is a new territory for me. And I, I actually find it really lovely to listen to people's voices without getting distracted about like what they're wearing or what their environment is like. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. And that's that thing. And also, I, I kind of love the uh, the curation and manipulation of the intellectual bookcases behind people, you know? So, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, in the back of the video. Like I, I'm the I'm the sort that will pause the video so I can have a look at the books. And equally, <laughs> I feel that I, I feel that there's a little bit of gaming going on it too. And so I mean, so I have a bookcase, but I almost slightly for the laugh, I include some of the boys' books. Uh, you know, uh, so so that it's not I, I don't I don't need it to be intellectual too hard. Um, but like so, like you say, take away that and with the voice, and and I think podcast can be good and works. Because you get a sense of people in a deeper way. And and before I've interviewed some people, when possible, I've listened to them do other interviews. Because then by the time you interview them, you're a bit less nervous maybe. But you also have a kind of a sense of who they are and how they roll. So, yeah, like I think there's I think there's value in voice. Um, it's the same way that for a while in Dublin, we'd often listen to books in the car. You know, it, it's not a terrible way to engage with things. And I, I think it can be good. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, a very interesting answer. Simon, I'm going to leave you with one thought about podcast. Uh, 
you know, podcasting as a medium, voice versus video. First of all, to say thanks very much for coming, coming obviously on the show. You've been an amazing guest. Um, and one of the guests from season one, this is the, the thought I'm going to leave you with. One of the guests from seasons one, uh, she listened to one of the previous guests, who's a very well-known journalist and author, listening to it in the bath. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, as I say, yeah, you can you can reply to that, of course. Uh, uh, we haven't got a bath, so it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah, look, um, where 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 do, where do we listen to them? So sometimes, like if we think the kids will enjoy it, we we do listen to it in the living room. Um, Otherwise, uh, basically, I, I try to listen to it in, in areas where I'm not going to kill myself by not being distracted. Driving is good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, look, uh, see, see, see my, my wife assesses who she's going to listen to and whether she likes their voice. So therefore, for meditation and stuff, I could imagine listening in the bath would be really good. Uh, I, I think, you know, horses for courses really on that one. Definitely, definitely. Well, as I say, thanks so much, Simon, for coming on today. Uh, it was really a pleasure and very, very interesting. Look, thanks. It's good to chat. And um, uh, it's, it's, I like the series that you're doing. You have a nice range of people and it's, it's, it's very positive. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Creative Places and Faces. We look forward to bringing you more creative insights into places around the world very soon.